All right, good morning. How is everyone? Good, good to see you guys. I want to encourage you to pull out your, your message notes this morning, and uh, we're going to dig into our new series, The Gospel of John, so that all may believe. And uh, we will be in John probably for the next two years. Looking forward to digging into this gospel account. So if you're 40, you're going to be 42. If you're 68, you're going to be 70, right? Um, Hey, listen, John MacArthur, I think he, it took him like five years, I think, to get through the Gospel of Luke. I don't know about John, probably five or six. So come on, man, two years is nothing, right? So every week, here's the, the beauty of a gospel. You, um, every week it's different, right? It's a different story. It's a different encounter. It's a different miracle. It's a different teaching. So looking forward to um, digging into the Gospel of John starting today. If you have a Bible, turn to John 1. John 1, we're going to look at verses 1 through 3. I'm going to give a big introduction to the book. And then we're going to dig in to the first three verses, unpack it a little bit. What is it saying? What does it mean? How do we apply it to our lives? And then I'll land the plane and hopefully we've got enough time between first and second service. All right. John 1, 1 to 3. In the beginning was the Word. Someone say Word. And the Word was with God and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. And without him was not anything made that was made. The gospel of John, for many people, it's their favorite book in the Bible. If you, were, if you remember being a new believer, the gospel of John was probably one of the first books that you read, right? We encourage new believers to read the gospel of John um, because uh, it really gives a, a great overview of Jesus' life and his ministry and the purpose of the book is about belief, believing that Jesus is the Son of God. The Gospel of John contains some of our most favorite verses. John 3, 16, for God so loved the world, right, that he gave his son. John eleven twenty six. you know, this encounter uh, that Jesus had with uh, Mary and Martha, their brother Lazarus uh, died. He said, I am the resurrection and the life. In John 14, Uh, The first two verses, uh, these are favorite verses of so many people when it comes to to death, giving hope and comfort to those who are believers in Christ. Jesus said, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? I, I love what Martin Luther said. Should a tyrant succeed in destroying the Holy Scriptures, and only a simple copy of the epistle to the Romans and the gospel of John escape him, Christianity would be saved. John's gospel starts out with one of the most foundational truths of Christianity. It starts out with who Jesus is. John 1.1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Fast forward to the end of the, the gospel of John. The book ends with how much Jesus did. It speaks of the vastness of his ministry. In John 21, 25, now there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. I mean, think of all the miracles performed. Think of all the teachings delivered. Think about all the the interactions, maybe the one-on-one encounters that Jesus had with people that never made it into the Bible. I think we think everything that he did is tucked away in the pages of the Word. No, 
There are miracles and teachings and interactions that he had. The world itself, a world that's pretty big, could not contain the books that would be written. John is saying, listen, Jesus did so much more than what we've been given. There are some things that are hidden, some things that are revealed. I want you to try to fathom this truth. This is is a mind-bending truth. There's more that Jesus did when it comes to his messianic ministry. As he was sent from the Father to this broken world to offer hope and peace and grace to people who needed it. You know, John is trying to help us to understand the breadth, the depth, the vastness of Jesus' ministry. Let's talk about the author of the Gospel of John. When you look at the epistles, especially Paul, he always introduces himself, right? Paul, an apostle. Paul, a servant, a doulos, right, of Jesus. When it comes to the Gospel of John, he doesn't identify himself as the author. He simply says, the disciple whom Jesus loved. There's internal evidence that John and Jesus must have been pretty close. You know, John was um, a personal friend. I, I, I like to think maybe John and Jesus were BFFs. They were best friends. You say, well, Jesus can't have any best friends. Well, he was fully man. You got a best friend? You got a close friend? Okay, all right. Fully man. So maybe John was really, really close. Uh, you know, we know that John was the disciple whom Jesus loved. There's external evidence that the church fathers attributed the book to John. Now here's what's interesting. There are four lists of the apostles mentioned in Mark, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and Acts. Four lists of the apostles. Three groups of four, always the same order, but the names in each group sometimes are shuffled around a bit. When you look at the list in the book of Acts, it excludes Judas because he committed suicide. When you look at all the other lists, Simon Peter is always listed first. Judas Iscariot is always listed last. Doubt that's a coincidence. The first group is always the two pairs of brothers, Simon Peter and Andrew, and James and John, the sons of Zebedee. There is no list in John's gospel of the apostles. If there was a list, I think John would have had to have identified himself. Jesus handpicked 12 men to be his disciples, his apostles, which are messengers, ambassadors of the kingdom. But he had an inner circle of three. He picked 12, but he had a really close relationship with three, Peter, James, and John. These men were the closest to Jesus. They experienced life-changing moments with him, the transfiguration. They, they saw Jairus' daughter raised back to life. Amazing miracles that they saw with their own eyeballs. Now let's talk about John and his family. The name John is actually an Old Testament name, which, means, uh, which is actually Jonah, which means dove. John had a brother by the name of James. Uh, James was one of the first disciples to be martyred for the faith. Tradition says he was beheaded. Acts 12 gives us that story. Um, They're known as the sons of Zebedee. Their mother, Salome, uh, most likely Jesus' mother, uh, was was sister to Jesus' mother, Mary. Now, I thought about digging into it, all the passages, but honestly, if you do the detective work on your own, if you look at you know, uh, close to the ending of all the Gospels, and you piece it all together, when Jesus is at the cross, each Gospel writer takes a similar but different vantage point, 
And when you piece all the lists and the names together, you come to the conclusion that Salome, John's mother, is Mary's sister, which means that Jesus and John were first cousins. Now, does that change your perspective on the book or what? Right? That's pretty amazing. John was first cousin of Jesus. Mothers were sisters. We know that James and John, their father, Zebedee, they, they owned um, this fishing business. Some people think that James and John had a partnership uh, with, with uh, Peter and Andrew in the fishing business. Uh, the family was very prosperous because the Gospel of Mark says that they had hired servants. Now, if, if you're wealthy and you got a lot of money, you can hire servants to help you. You hire employees to run the business, right? Help you run the business. If you're a poor family, you are the servants. Okay, that's great. That joke fell flat. All right, here we go. Um, family was very prosperous, right? James and John, they're inseparable in the Gospels. Uh, Mark chapter 3, I love the laughs after the fact. That's the, thank you guys, appreciate that, you know. Mark 3, the, the nickname given to the brothers were uh, Bonerges, which means sons of thunder. They were given this title because of their forceful personalities. They had uh, volatile tempers. There's a story that Jesus was on his way uh, to Jerusalem for his final Passover. And he sent messengers in to a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not accept him. They, they rejected Jesus. And, and, and notice what it says in Luke 9, 54. And when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? James and John were like, hey, Jesus, let's smoke these Samaritans, you know? Let's call fire down and destroy these people. These brothers were outraged. They were furious that their rabbi, the one that they're following, that he was rejected. They were fiery. They were zealous. They were passionate. They were outspoken. And these were the guys that Jesus handpicked to be on his team. Mark chapter 10, there's a debate. There's an ongoing debate. Actually, the context of the debate, you'll find this very interesting, the, the irony of all ironies, they're making their way to Jerusalem. It's the final journey to Jerusalem, the final week of Jesus' Passover, his last earthly week of his life. And what are the disciples doing as they're making their way there? They're arguing. They're bantering back and forth. Who's gonna be the greatest in the kingdom? They have the audacious request to be at Jesus' right hand and left hand. And guess what happens? They, they give the request and mom gets involved. Matthew 20, 20 to 21 says, then the mother of the sons of Zebedee, so, you know, um, the sister of Jesus' mom, their aunts, the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him with, with her sons. Kneeling before him, she asked him for something. And he said to her, what do you want? She said to him, say to these two sons of mine, uh, say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your kingdom. Now, I always found that that was very interesting. It puts a, a whole new spin on their mom's request. Can my, can my boys sit in the kingdom, one on your left and one on your right? Here's the deal. You never want your mom to get involved in your dirty work, right? I mean, come on, guys. I mean, they have these... these um, 
volatile tempers, these forceful personalities, and yet they're letting their mom come in and try to get them jobs in the kingdom. Now you can see why the disciples were enraged. James and John were first cousins to Jesus, and now they're trying to lean on nepotism. They're trying to get a job in the kingdom. There's personal, um, you know, favoritism, you know, is what they're thinking. We know that John is the second most um, known out of all the disciples. Uh, He's the first one to encounter Jesus. He's a follower of John the Baptist. He's a part of the inner circle of three. Without a shadow of a doubt, John was the closest to Jesus. He was the disciple whom Jesus loved. He wrote the Gospel of John. He wrote 1st, 2nd, 3rd John. And he wrote the book of Revelation. He's known as the apostle of love. He used the word love more than 100 times in his writings. You know what this tells me? John was a molded man by Jesus. He has this forceful, volatile temper, strong personality, very passionate. And yet, when he encounters Christ, and over the years, God refines and, and refines him and, and, and conforms him to his own image and, and works the rough edges out of his life. He goes from having a volatile temper to one who becomes a lover of people. And only the gospel of Jesus can do this in someone's life. The Bible is chocked full of verses that say that if you don't have love for one another, you're not born of God. 1 John is, is, is stacked full of verse after verse after verse after verse saying, if you don't have love for people, you're not born of God. If you don't have love for people, you remain in darkness. If you don't have love for people, you, do, you truly don't know God, right? How can you say that, you know, you love God whom you've never seen, but yet hate your brother? John the apostle wrote all of that under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. But this guy, he was a molded man. His heart was softened by the gospel. Christ had truly transformed his life. When you come to faith in Christ, he changes you. Genuine faith in Christ changes you from the inside out. If, If you believe that you've met Christ, you've encountered him, but your life remains the same, you might want to re-examine where you stand with God. You may have never encountered him. Intellectually, maybe you, you did encounter him, right? You encountered him in terms of facts, in terms of um, you know, understanding maybe a few different stories, but you've never understood him when it comes to heart transformation and truly following him, and truly surrendering, and truly letting him be the Lord and the Savior and the God of your life. John was also a leader of the early church. So we know that he was a cousin, he was an apostle, he was a part of the inner circle of three, he saw the transfiguration. But in Galatians chapter 2 verse 9, I'm not going to read it, it says that Paul calls John a pillar of the early church. Paul who encountered Jesus on the road to Damascus, who was Saul, who persecuted the church. He ravaged the church. Paul gives authority, recognizes John's apostleship. He recognizes his authority as a leader in the early church. If you you go back to the book of Acts, Acts 4, verse 13, 
Notice what it says. I mean, revival's breaking out. The early church is growing. People are getting saved, getting baptized. Amazing things are happening. And it says, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. They saw the boldness of Peter and John. Let me ask you a question. Are you bold for Jesus? Are you bold for Jesus? Are you willing to take opportunities and step into just feelings of uncomfortability? Are you willing to step you know, out of your comfort zone and embrace maybe an awkward moment? The possibility of maybe being rejected or you know, snide remarks being made of you. Here's the deal. I think that's the approach of the enemy. I think the enemy wants you to think that people are not searching for spiritual truth. The enemy wants to downplay and, and cause you to feel like, you know, you don't know enough, you're not good enough. Listen, we gotta have boldness. We gotta have boldness when it comes to our faith and sharing the gospel with lost people. They, they had boldness, they were uneducated. I mean, it's not like they were trained in the, the, the most prestigious rabbinical schools in Jewish culture. They were uneducated, common men. They were just ordinary, run-of-the-mill guys. And it says that they saw their boldness and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. I think that's what gives you boldness when you spend time with Jesus. When you spend time with Jesus, when you carve out time in, in prayer and the word and, 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 and you pursue him, he's going to then transform your life, especially when it comes to uh, evangelizing the lost. The Bible says that they turned the world upside down because of the gospel. We know that John was exiled on a rocky barren island called Patmos by the Roman emperor Domitian. And this is where on the island, he received this grand vision that he records to us in the book of Revelation. Before his, before his exile on the island, history tells us they actually tried to boil him alive. They persecuted him. And then they, that, that fell, so they, they banished him to the island. And we know that eventually he left the island of Patmos and for the last decades of his life, he went to Asia Minor, specifically the city of Ephesus. We know that Paul planted a church in Ephesus. And it's there that he was overseeing the churches in Asia Minor. Near the end of his life, he could not preach. History says that he was carried to the church. And according to the fourth century church father, Jerome, John exhorted the congregation to love one another. He said, quote, it is the Lord's command, and if only this be done, it is enough. He died around the age of 100. He was the last of the apostles to die. I want you to think about this. Who better to write a gospel account than John? John grew up with Jesus. He was a first cousin to Jesus. He knew Jesus intimately, right? He spent time with him. Let's talk about the purpose and theme of John's gospel. You know, many people wrong, wrongfully believe that there are four gospels and the four gospels are four different biographies of Jesus about, you know, the chronology of his life. Here's the deal though. Each gospel has a clear purpose and a clear theme. When you look at the gospel of Matthew, Matthew is writing to a Jewish audience. The book is very clear about that. The beginning of, of the book, chapter one, he starts with the genealogy. He traces 
Jesus, the Messiah, back to David. We know that the promise was given that there would be an heir on David's throne forever. And, and so basically Matthew makes the case to a Jewish audience that Jesus is the rightful heir. He is the eternal king, the long-awaited Messiah. When you look at the Gospel of Mark, Mark is most likely writing to Romans. And, and the theme is that Jesus is a servant. When you look at Luke, which we did, took us two years to get through that book, he used the favorite title, Son of Man. He referenced Jesus as the Son of Man, and he wrote to a Gentile audience, and really, Luke's focus was on Jesus' humanity. Now, when we come to the Gospel of John, his purpose is so different. I want you to look at John 20, 30 to 31. It says, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. The key word in this purpose clause is believe, so that you may believe. In the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew paints Jesus as the Messiah, one that you should worship. Mark paints Jesus as a servant, someone that you should follow. Luke says that Jesus is, is a man without sin. You should emulate him. John says that Jesus is God in the flesh and you should believe in him. 98 times he uses the word belief. John is saying, this is the purpose of my gospel. This is the theme of my gospel. I want you to see Jesus as truth. I want you to trust him alone for the forgiveness of your sins. Notice the threefold purpose. Number one, he wrote so that we would believe that Jesus is the Christ. The word Christ in the Greek is Christos. It means the Messiah, the anointed one. So John is saying Jesus is this long-awaited Messiah. All the promises in the Old Testament are fulfilled in him. Number two, I wrote the gospel so that you might believe that Jesus is the son of God. Jesus has this unique role, this unique relationship. Jesus is God wrapped in flesh. And third, I wrote this gospel so that you might believe in Jesus, which results in eternal life. The big question that people are searching for is, what's the meaning of life? What is, what's the purpose of life? Why am I here? Life is not an accident. You were made by God and for God. You were, you were made for God's pleasure. You were made to last forever. This is why you were built with a soul. The Bible is, is so clear that God extends to us this promise. And this promise is extended to everyone. Whether you live in China or the Middle East or Central America or Central Asia or the United States or, or Canada or wherever, right? The promise is extended to you. If you're breathing, if you have a pulse, this promise is for you, which means there is hope beyond the grave. There is life beyond the grave, which is found in Jesus you can have life now and you can have life beyond the grave. And this is why God gives us the gospel, the gospel of John, so that we might see 
Jesus' glory, his, who he is, his, his person, his identity, his work, and we might hail him as the son of God. To prove, John wrote to prove that Jesus is divine. I want you to think about this real quick. Does anybody have any cousins that are sinless? Anybody? Any, anybody have any, like a brother that's sinless? Anybody? Right, right. I mean, think about, I think this is amazing proof that points to the deity of Christ and his sinlessness. He had cousins that affirmed his deity. That's incredible. Both James and John, first cousins, followed him. And at some point in this following of Jesus in this ministry, they came to the conclusion that he is God. James, Jesus' little brother. I mean, think about this, right? A little brother hails you as God, worships you as the long-awaited King Messiah. That's kind of hard to do, right? Little brother, big brother, right? I mean, that, that's proof that Jesus indeed is God in human flesh. That's powerful proof. And this is why John says in John 21, 24, this is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things and who has written these things. And we know that his testimony is true. If you go back and you look at verse 30 of the passage that we previously read, he talks about, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which means John was an eyewitness. He was an eyewitness to these miracles, to these signs. Signs means miracles. And there's only seven miracles recorded in the Gospel of John. We're going to see that John, the book of John is very Jewish in nature. He talks about feasts and festivals and the tabernacle. And we also know that John gives us something very unique. He gives Jesus' seven I am statements. If you go back to the book of Exodus, remember how God was calling Moses from the burning bush to go to Egypt? And Moses, he was just throwing out excuses one after the other. Well, what's your name? And God said, I am who I am, Yahweh. That's the divine name of God. And so fast forward to the Gospel of John, what does Jesus do? He applies the divine title to himself. What God said about himself in the midst of the burning bush, Jesus picks up on that and applies divinity to himself. I am the bread. I am the good shepherd. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the door. All these I am statements. Now, Matthew Mark and Luke are synoptic gospels, which means that they record similar stories. Um, John is so unique. Now, here's the interesting thing about, unique, uh, about John. Have you noticed that there's no genealogy? John starts out with no genealogy. There's no Christmas story. There's no parables. There's no baptism, no temptation, no transfiguration, no Lord's Supper, no agony in the garden, and no ascension. But here's what's unique to John's gospel. The majority of the gospel of John, now this is going to blow your mind. Either I didn't know this or I completely forgot about this. And it blew my mind this week. Are, are you ready? You ready for your mind to be blown? You ready? Okay, maybe I'm not going to tell you. I'm not getting no response. Fine, that's fine. Let's just move on. Let's just move on. Most of the gospel of John deals with the last 30 days of Jesus' life. 
That blew my mind. Completely blew my mind. So that is so unique to John's gospel. He's lasering in on the final events, the final weeks of Jesus' life. We know that Jesus lived roughly 33 years. And John focuses on the last 30 days. All right, so that's big overview, John family, you know, theme, purpose, so that you may believe. Okay, now, with the time remaining, let's dig into the study of John's gospel. You guys ready? All right, John 1.1 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Here's point number one. Jesus Christ is God. There's a lot of people that don't believe that. There's a lot of religions that don't believe, a lot of worldviews that don't hold to this core, foundational, essential truth tucked away in the Bible. John, who wrote the Gospel of John, who also wrote 1 John, in the beginning of 1 John, he said, we saw him, we heard him, and we touched him. He came to the conclusion that Jesus indeed is more than flesh. Now this, this word mentioned in verse one is then mentioned down in John 1, verse 14. It says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only begotten son from the father, full of grace and truth. You know, this is the Christmas story according to John. In John's gospel, there's no Christmas story. There's no Christmas narrative. There's no Bethlehem. There's no shepherds. There's no angels. There's no magi. But here's the Christmas truth. The word became flesh. God became incarnate. It means that God, the creator of the universe, took upon humanity. God came into our world through a birth canal. He took upon flesh. He came to represent. He came to bridge the gap. He came to give his life as a ransom for many. He came for you. He dwelt among us. The glory of God dwelt among us. As John said, we saw his glory. He's full of grace and he's full of truth. Side quick application point. That's what we should strive to do and be in our lives. Hold to the tension of grace and truth. Be truthful. Here's the deal. If you don't hold the truth, you're a compromiser. You're a compromiser. Don't compromise your faith, right? The Bible says that, Jude says that our faith has been handed down once and for all. The Bible says we need to contend for our faith. The Bible says we need to be winsome towards outsiders. We need to engage lostness. We need to build relationships for the sake of the gospel. Don't shy away from holding tightly to truth. We've got to hold the truth. We can't compromise with culture. But we also need to balance that truth with a heart that's filled with his grace. We need to be grace-filled. Uh, our, our tone and our words and our actions and how we treat other people should be filled with grace. Here's the deal. You can agree to disagree with people, especially lost people, but guess what? God invites you into that relationship to show them what a changed life by the gospel really looks like. 
you have an opportunity. You can't change them. You cannot change the people in your oikos. You can't change the, the spouse, the, the daughter, the aunt, the grandma, the grandpa, the, the person that God's put in, into your world that you have a burden for and you want them to come to know Christ. You can't change them. But God can, right? God can do the impossible. The Bible says there's nothing too difficult for God. We need to step out and believe by faith that God can do big things in the lives of those that we love that don't know him. We gotta balance grace and truth. It says that God became incarnate. He took upon humanity. The Christmas story is the beginning of the incarnation, right? Jesus taking upon flesh, but it's not the beginning of the Son of God. Jesus has always existed, John begins his gospel with the most foundational truth. Jesus is God. The word, the word, word is capitalized. It represents deity. John, as a cousin, spent three years with him, and he came to believe that Jesus indeed is the Son of God. Point number two, Jesus Christ has always existed. He has always existed. There's never been a moment when Jesus was not the son of God. There's never been a moment when Jesus was non-existent. He's always existed. John 1, 1 and 2, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Now the Jehovah Witnesses and the Muslims, they'll say that this is a mistranslation. They'll say, and the word was a God. They, they insert the word A. Jehovah's Witnesses, well, you know, Jesus, he's a created being. They, they like to say that Jesus is, well, he's a mighty God, but he's not the almighty God. They believe that he's a created being. They deny the Trinity, just like Muslims do. But here's the deal. In the Greek, there is a def- definite article. A definite article is the word the. Literally, in the Greek, it says, the word and the word was the God speaks of Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, one divine nature, three persons. This is a massive difference between Islam and Christianity. Jehovah Witnesses believe, like I said, Jesus was created being. Muslims believe that God can't have a son. They don't believe that Jesus is the Son of God, that he himself is God. They don't understand the incarnation. How could God become man and take upon flesh? The Muslims see Jesus as a holy prophet. He's a prophet, but he's not the son of God. So if you have a Muslim friend, they believe that he was a prophet. Well, prophets speak for God, and prophets should tell the truth. So use the Bible. Use Jesus' words about what he says about himself. Right? If, if, if a prophet speaks truth, then show them what Jesus says about himself. You know, Muslims, they don't understand the incarnation. They see Jesus as uh, just a holy prophet. When it comes to evangelizing Muslims, right, uh, we have to understand that basically they believe that there is no savior. There is no savior, so you have to save yourself. You have to pile on works after works, after works, and maybe, just maybe, you might be forgiven when you exit this life. Why is the incarnation so foundational to the gospel? Because God 
broke, penetrated into our world, and he sacrificed himself for sinners. That is the beauty of the gospel. This God who created the universe, this God who created you, this God left the glory, the throne room of heaven, and he took upon flesh to die in your place, to pay for all your sins. Here's point number three. Jesus Christ was the agent of creation. In John chapter one, verse three, it says, all things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. You know, a lot of people think that the, the father, you know, uh, the God, the father, he, he's this just God and, um, and he's this powerful creator and he created everything. Actually, Jesus is the agent of creation. So it rules him out for being created. He's the creator of all things. And the Bible says that someday he's going to judge the living and the dead. So it's his business from beginning to the end, right? From creation to judgment, it's his business. Jesus has done it all. He's going to do it all. You know what John is saying? Jesus has always been God. When there was nothing, there was God. Let me give you a, a quick side note here real quick on this. Have you ever had someone say to you, stay in your lane when it comes to like controversial issues. There was an article that was shared um, with me from one of our church members a few years ago and I held on to it and I thought, man, it's so good. Basically, I'll just kind of give you a recap of the article. Uh, the, the whole thing is, you know, when, when people say stay in your lane, usually it's applied to unpopular issues like abortion, your view of marriage or religious freedom. No one tells the church to stop fighting against human sex trafficking or to no longer dig wells for communities without fresh water, or to see sustainable economic development in impoverished nations. Christians rescued and cared for children and opposed the gladiatorial games during the Roman Empire. When we stay silent on unpopular issues, we fail the test of courage and integrity because the head of the church is Christ, who is Lord over everything. Christ's lane is the entire cosmos. His lane is the cosmos. In the beginning, he spoke, and nothing became something. He's always been. He's always existed. Verse 3 says, all things were made through him. Through him. I don't know what your view is on the origin of creation, but I'm going with John. John said that Jesus created everything Done, period, take it to the bank. That's how it happened. Now, if you want to just believe in this just ridiculous notion of evolution and things are just evolving into greater complexity and perfection, that's crazy because that's not what the Bible teaches. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the Gospel of John, John is, is referencing Jesus being from the very beginning who created all things. John wrote his gospel so that we might believe in him. You know, right now, you're exercising faith. You're exercising faith in a chair right now. You know, before you sat down, you intellectually believed that this chair would hold you up, right? When you get on an airplane, you're believing that the pilot has been trained they have education, they know how to troubleshoot problems, they know exactly how to fly that plane. 
You are placing trust in that plane. It's, it's, a, it's a calculated risk based on prior information. The amazing thing about this word belief that John uses, it actually carries the, the notion, the idea of trust. Not so much um, something that's intellectual, you know, it's more than believing that a chair is gonna hold you up, more than intellectual. It's actually you are placing your belief, your faith, your trust in Christ. You are relying upon him. There's a difference between intellectual belief and trust from the heart, a trust that relies on Jesus. So here's the question. Are you relying on your own self-righteousness, your own good works, your performance? You know, you're hitting all the check boxes, right? You give to the church maybe, maybe you've been baptized, maybe, you know, I said that prayer, you know, whatever, right? But are you truly relying on Jesus? Have you anchored your eternity to him? Is he the only one that you are banking on to get you into heaven? Is he the one that has purchased your soul with his blood? Is, is he your hope for eternity? Is he it? Like the thief on the cross. The thief on the cross had nothing to point to. Nothing to point to. No works, no goodness, no good actions, no nothing. And yet Jesus said today, You'll be with me in paradise. It is simple trust in a savior that has paid for all of our sins. Let's pray.